Now on RT Radio 1, Arts Tonight, presented by Vincent Woods. Hello and welcome to Arts Tonight. On this edition of the programme, paying tribute to the writing of the late Dermot Healy, who over a 30-year period before his death last year, produced an astonishing body of work praised for its unique voice and style. 13 plays, five collections of poetry, an acclaimed memoir, The Bend for Home, and five novels, including A Goat's Song, often cited as one of the great Irish novels of recent times. Contributors to the programme, Keith Hopper, Research Fellow in the Centre of Irish Studies at St Mary's in Twickenham, who, along with Neil Murphy, is editing a series of books relating to Dermot Healy's writing to be published by the Dorky Archive Press in the coming months. Poet Mary O'Malley, Peter Fallon, poet, editor and publisher of the Gallery Press, who published Dermot Healy's poems, most recently his posthumous connection The Travels of Sorrow. Neil Jordan, writer and longtime friend, who first met Dermot Healy in the 1970s. Timothy O'Grady, author of I Could Read the Sky, in the film version of which Dermot Healy performed the lead role. Brian Layden, writer and past editor of Force 10 magazine, and Bill Swainson, who edited Dermot Healy's prose. But first, Dermot Healy in his own words. I don't uh, think at any stage I ever imagined I'd do anything else but write. Whether I was ever going to get published or not didn't enter into it at the time. Once you lock language into a space and put it in and you start writing, uh, the thing that might have happened to you changes the minute you start writing it down. Whatever might have happened to you turns away from the actual lived life into the lived language. And so, of course, I'm the same liar as I was as a child and the same exaggerator. Once it's told orally, it's fine, because that can um, be chewed over by the listening mind. But a story in print is a story which the writer tries their best to sell the illusion to the reader who's reading it in silence. I would say that the imagination will endure. As long as imagination is, is, is there, then it has to seek an outlet. Thank you. 
for years, he kept the same quiet profile. A reserved man, a churchgoer who seldom went to church, a reader of odd doctrines, a man who lived by himself in the barracks, a man whose prejudices were hidden from the world, and perhaps he would remain like that. If in the same year that both his parents died, he had not met Maisie Ruttle, a gangly, fair-haired woman who was a Methodist, born and bred in the Free State. She'd come north to work as a cook for Lord Brookborough. Jonathan met her on the Tarmacadden path that was being laid through the estate. A road worker had a finger severed by a winch that was hauling stone and the police had been called. She was holding the man's hand in a bloody towel by the edge of the path under a spreading elm. Very gently, she got the labourer seated next to her in the back of the police car. All the way to Inniskillen Hospital, she talked to the man as she held his wounded hand. He'll be all right. Don't fret. Easy now. And only let him go when the doctor came. The voice of the late Dermot Healy there speaking about and reading from his novel A Goat's Song and the music you heard, some of the music he loved. Judith Guthrie's composed and played by Finton Valley. I spoke with Neil Jordan, friend of Dermot Healy and fellow writer, and he told me how they first met. I met Dermot in Cavan. I'd read one of his first published stories, Banished Misfortune, and uh, I tried to find out where he lived because I ran a publishing thing at the time and uh, travelled up to this kind of wet, windy farmhouse somewhere in Cavan, and there he was with his young child, Alan. But he hadn't published any fiction, so this was the first piece of fiction I read. And I said, look, we'd like to publish you, and... He probably very wisely said, you know, I want to have an English publisher because at the time uh, publishing was was in a very difficult state and the reason we set up this enterprise, which lasted enough to publish about 12 or 13 writers, you know, was because there was no publishing here and there there was no international writers at the time at all. And, I mean, he had an extraordinary... As I got to know him more, I went up to see him there. Uh, We used to meet each other in London. We were going back and forth to London a lot and uh, I got to know his mother and his aunts. He was basically brought up in a cake shop he seems to have been anyway by these uh, strange women who turned out to be his aunts and they all seem to be mountain people that's the way he described them anyway and I didn't know it, I'm from Dublin so I didn't know anything about mountain people or townies or the difference or whatever And they, they seem to have this really uh, Chaucerian life or something it was like something out of the wife of Bath or something and it was extraordinary and I've never forgotten it and he's always outwitted my perceptions in that way, you know, through the years, even though he's had a lot of trouble along the times, and he's, uh, in many in many ways, he went, led quite a, a peripatetic life, would that be the way to describe it, you know? <laughs> and you'd find him in odd be. places around the... But, he's, uh, but he always published this wonderful stuff. He's always been a total puzzle, even though he was one of my best friends, you know. Despite the Irishness of Dermot's work in, in theme at times and the landscape of it, it always struck me that there's something borderless within it as well and Dermot read really widely didn't he I mean he he, oh, yeah. he was a voracious reader of, of world literature he was though he would never let you know what he had read he had that kind of McGarren-esque thing you know that kind of thing that never always answering a question with a question you'd never know where his brain was quite coming from you know but yet you know we're dealing with a very terribly learned man and somebody whose literature was their absolute their life writing with their life you know I mean a lot of people get jobs in the bank or work as teachers or nowadays they become authors as a career or something. Dermot never did that and he seemed to me to bridge the uh, Flann O'Brien generation which was 
kind of riddled with failure and genius and impossible kind of genius and a lot of alcohol and the idea, the kind of impossible idea of a professional writing life, you know, which didn't, wasn't available to people of the 50s, really. And Dermot seemed to bridge that gap in some way. He wrote some absolutely extraordinary things and some terribly, quite impenetrable things as well. But we, when he allowed himself to be simple, I always thought he was marvellous, you know, but he found it very hard to be simple. Where do you see that strength of simplicity at, at its best in his work? I love, the, I love all of his books, you know. I mean, the book that everybody celebrates, The Goat Song, yeah, is a huge, huge piece of work, you know. It, it's, it's some, some, some parts of it are very difficult to work out whether he himself knew what he want, wanted to express in these sections, and other pieces of it just sing, you know. Did you talk together about about writing, about the process of writing? Did he, did he talk to you about your writing, for example? Again, in a very tangential way, he seemed, he, 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 what seemed to drive him really was the, the kind of ethical core behind writing in some way, or the life as lived, the, the, the life of a writer as lived, you know, in, in a strange way, I suppose in the way of uh, Malcolm Lowry or some of those characters, you know, who are fated to live this kind, of, this kind of life, the imagination, you know. But yeah, he was very concerned with writing, and was very... Um, but again, in that strange mountainy way he would never let you know exactly how much he knew <laughs> it's absolutely wonderful dialogue and I haven't seen enough of his plays you know I don't think anybody's seen enough of his plays and the last time I met him actually in his house he read me one of his plays yeah and he really seemed to want to read it so uh, but I, I mean I thought it was extraordinary in the kind of naturalness of his dialogue and also in the impossibility of understanding what the hell it was about you know so both things were there at the same time which was heartening and absolutely fascinating, you know, and maddening at the same time. I mean, I always had a, f- a phrase that I used to say was typical of Dermot any, any time we got talking. He used to laugh at it, which was the bar slowly filled up with swans. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I said, Dermot, you're going there again, you know, that kind of thing. Well, I don't know if you know what that means, but he would. Of course, uh, but people might know as well, that Dermot was a very good actor and uh, acting in his plays, but he, was also, he also had a part in The Butcher Boy. Yeah, he did. Well, I mean, he was always a good actor. And uh, um, even before I saw him act, I thought he would be a great actor. So when I was doing the, the first film I did called Angel, there was a small part of a guy, towards the very end of it, Stephen Ray wanders through this landscape, this, this caravan, you know, where there's a faith healer inside. And I always, there was a man outside who was inviting people in. I wanted Dermot to be that man. He didn't turn up. I mean, he literally did not turn up, so I had to cast somebody else. And uh, so when I came to do The Butcher Boy, there was a little role at the end, like Francie Brady's covered in bandages, and he's talking to an owl codger beside him in the hospital, and I thought Dermot would do that rather well. And actually, I could have gone shooting on that scene for the whole day. He was so, it was so entrancing and so kind of capricious, you know. But, uh, yeah, he was a good actor. Some people... Some critics would say that that maybe the the force of his fiction was diluted by his work in theatre, by his writing the plays, by poetry, by by the other areas he 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 went into. And is there a validity in that? Do you think, or is that too narrow a reading of the way Dermot wrote and the fullness of his work? I don't. I don't think he probably would have written any more fiction than he did you know and I, in that I compare him to myself because people say uh, if you hadn't made movies would you have written more books and I, I'm not sure you know I'm 65 now I'm not sure I would have written any more books if I had never made movies you know that kind of thing and Dermot um, the whole thing of poetry was very very important to him you know he regarded himself as a poet as well as everything else I think he found fiction very hard you know putting lines 
along so they fill from the left hand side to the other the right hand side of the page is very very hard you know it's much harder than writing dialogue and i've never written poetry so not since i was 12 you know but i'm I'm sure it's harder than that too and i think he did find fiction very hard but he was was always engaged you know with the word you know and with storytelling the other aspect of his engagement is force 10 force 10 and I, i mean that was extraordinary because he literally would uh spend days with these old rural people getting their stories out of them and getting their kind of... Um, and it wasn't about uh, a kind of a nostalgic recreation of, you know, an Ireland that's vanishing. It was about interest in people and speech, you know, and interest in how people explain their lives, you know. And uh, I think that was a major enterprise for him as well. don't know how you'd have time to have written more. I'm sure he could have written more books, but I'm not sure he thought he himself would have thought he could have, you know. Has the, the the power of 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 um, Dermot's imagination and and that angle at things been a been a force of inspiration for you? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I mean, in terms of over the last fifteen years or so, I mean, there's there's been three or four people I relate to: Pat, Patrick McKay because I've made work we've worked together, Dermot Healy, you know, John Banville. I talked to a bit, but all, all of them have been. You know, it's it's you kind of need those people because you're on your own doing this stuff and you want to talk about it. And Dermot has been definitely... He's also the godfather to my child, Daniel. So Dermot's definitely been one of those, you know. Remember you uh, saying at one point that, that Dermot's world was this strange world that you never knew existed, this strange mm. world of rural Ireland. Uh, and how you you didn't know quite how he managed to make that world mythic, but he did. I suppose because... He didn't feel the need to be logical about his statements or his memories or even his own experiences, you know. You've got this extraordinary kind of carousel of things going on in his work and in talking to him. And it was, also, it was very difficult also to, even in talking to him himself, to know what experience he told you were real or were not. For example, he's told me hours of things. Um, I don't know what the term is, but he's told me multiple things about his experiences in London and uh, how he used to drink at the Colony Club, you know, in the afternoons with Francis Bacon, and, you know, they used to, you know, ply down bottles of champagne and blah, 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 blah. Is that true or not? I don't know. It sounds true. It'd be wonderful if it was true, and I'm sure it is. Knowing Dermot, it probably is true, you know, that kind of thing. But to connect the bits is, that's the time you were doing this? Okay, that's when you meet Francis Bacon when you were, like, working as a labourer in this place? Okay. You know, it's, it's, it's hard to make all the, all the pieces, all the dots match up, in a way. But um, they're all true, I'm sure. Do you reread the work? I haven't read the, re-read, re-read the work for a long time. I sometimes dip into the poetry, actually. I do, you know, particularly the Ballycoddle Colours, which is lovely, really lovely. You seem to have found that kind of way through to some certain kind of simplicity that is, you know, that doesn't torment your brain too much, you know. But I, I ha- what, what I do read constantly, just because I enjoy it so much, is The Band for Home where he talks about that strange childhood that he led, which seemed like kind of gifted, blessed in some strange way, you know. Neil Jordan there speaking with me about the late Dermot Healy, his friend and a writer he greatly admired. And Brian Layton, Neil Jordan mentioned Force 10 there, the force that came out of the West and Northwest all those years ago, a magazine founded by Dermot Healy and a remarkable journal by any standards. 
Yes, Vincent. Well, Force 10, uh, Issue 1, appeared in 1989, priced uh, £3.95, and there would be 13 issues in all, various times, and it's best described as the Irish Sun. Very welcome when it appeared, but nobody knew when it would appear. It actually grew out of Dermot being so connected to... A variety of writers groups in the Northwest in particular. You had the Allium Society in Ballyshannon, Killybegs Writers Group, the Art Store Group in Moylarg Writers. And he felt that there was a particular voice and tone in the language that wasn't being expressed anywhere else. So he created this vehicle called Force 10 and it combined interviews, history, short stories, poetry. And the marvellous thing about it was that As Neil said, Dermot knew so many people and connected to so many people that you had new voices who would become known voices like Liam Brown and Ger Reedy and Molly McCluskey and Orlin O'Connell. And you had the likes of Seamus Heaney submitting poetry and Francis Harvey and Leland Bardwell. And this extraordinary mix seemed to just capture what maybe Sean Dunn said was the oddity and darkness of the country and the ordinary richness of life, and it created a kind of marvel. Is it fair to say that its vision and originality came from Dermot Healy's own vision and originality of thought? Uh, I love what Neil Jordan said about Dermot outwitting perceptions of himself. He was multifaceted. He had a very restless personality and a restless, very capacious mind. So all of that fed in. He'd been involved in a Drumlin magazine in Cavan and he brought that template to Sligo and working with, in particular, the Markovich Writers Group, he really was interested in training or helping writers to listen and to capture the authentic voice and he established interview techniques that were invaluable to writers. Certainly only Dermot could have negotiated both the politics of producing a magazine at the time, which he got quite argumentative in defending it, saying that it's very difficult to create a journal of literature outside of the mainstream and in the regions in particular. And there was something in Dermot that was very loyal to place. Timothy O'Grady, Dermot Healy had a very particular interviewing technique and and that came to the fore in Force 10. I know he talked to you about that when you interviewed him. It meant that that the interviews had pretty enormous input by Dermot Healy himself. He told me that what he used to do would be to, instead of using a microphone, he would write down what people said. And he thought that the effect this had on people was that it lent some importance to the occasion. It made them think that there was something at stake. It also gave them time to reflect. It also started up a rhythm that gave more and more space to the speaker. He would more and more disappear from it. And he felt that he got much more out of somebody that way. And probably what he also did was that he was choosing which phrases he would write down. I mean, nobody could possibly write down every single syllable that somebody speaks. So he was choosing the phrases, which was in effect writing the piece in in a sense, or starting to write the piece. So I think he was selecting, and then he would have all this material, and I don't know what he did with it then, but I guess he would just remember it, and then start to write a piece of prose. And uh, the first thing I encountered in Force 10 was an interview he did with a, I believe it was a farmer from Mayo, and the piece started with, um, it was almost like a Frank O'Connor story or some, a very conventional Irish rural cottage story 
uh, with a mother breaking bread, I think. And then suddenly, like, you know, one of these planes screaming across the sky, there comes across the page this image from Vietnam, and you don't know where it's come from. That would be Dermot, Dermot's method of juxtaposition. And then you learn that this character had gone from Mayo to London. He'd failed. He got passage to Australia. He became a, a laborer there and then eventually was drafted and wound up serving in Vietnam and uh, was asked by an American officer to shoot one of his own men who had been wounded and there was no morphine available. And then it winds up back in Mayo again. And this was accomplished in a fairly short number of words. You know, he would have given that man a lot of time and then produced a, a piece of writing out of it that had the authenticity of, of this person's voice, but from which he was absolutely absent. And he did say to me that the increasing simplicity of his own work, if you go from all the multicolored density of banished misfortune to to the dialogue in the Ben for Home or Long Time No See, he said listening to those people probably allowed him to absent himself from the text in a way. And he moved progressively toward, I think, throughout his work. Brian, uh, Force 10 was a, a regional production and publication, and proudly so. Um, I think Dermot w- was very aware, though, of how that sometimes stood in the way of it being taken seriously at a national or perhaps Dublin level as one of the few magazines, for instance, publishing new original work. It was one of the few. The fact that he was working with groups who were largely on these social employment schemes, it became almost a charity in the perceptions of some reviewers and that irked Dermot and also remember there were a huge number of photographers contributing and you have photographs by John Minahan and Mike Bunn and resident photographers Joe Gray and Noel Kagallan and this would become uh, another element in Dermot the whole visual side the very first cover on the very first issue of Force 10 has a wonderful charcoal drawing by Sean McSweeney, an artist, as I say, who can draw the wind, as he literally does on that cover. It was as complex as the man himself, but perhaps that wasn't always seen. Miriam Malley, you contributed to Force 10. What <coughs> did you publish uh, with Dermot? I, he asked me for poems at various stages and I, to my shame, I can't remember which ones now because I was quite involved with Mayo at that time. I was writer in residence for a year, I think, and uh, attended many Force Tens at Dermot's uh, insistence or invitation. Because of course there was uh, that Force Ten festival in, in Mayo. Wonderful, mad Force Ten festival. I thought it was a very, very important magazine. I loved the layout and I liked the juxtaposition of interview poems, stories particularly. I was drawn to Dermot's writing in general because unlike Neil Jordan, diametrically, in fact, I recognised the world. For the first time I saw the world I had grown up in, in print, I recognised the people and how they spoke because they came from Mayo or, in my case, Connemara. In fact, it meant they had lived in many places very often. They moved back and forth very, very easily and time and place were quite permeable. And so you were as likely to hear stories about Vietnam or London or Leeds as you were chickens and hens and whatever, all mixed up as they were in many of Dermot's books. And he wrote very often, I think, by hint and allegation in the way that musicians play. You know, when musicians move together into a session, there's that beginning, there are no instructions. So it is, sometimes it's instinctive. and those, He was, was very alert, wasn't he, to all life his around His ear him. was quite extraordinary, both for dialogue 
which he dropped in at the most interesting places in the prose, but also in the poems. You know, there's a wonderful phrase that pops into a London scene and I think it's called One Minute with Eileen, that poem, where the boy is coming out of a brothel uh, with his head down like a duck and thunder. And he had that gift of taking the normal phrase, the oral, out of that oral tradition and not confining it to a sing-type, you know, romanticised west of Ireland, but putting it where it belonged, wherever the people went. Keith Hopper, you, I think, have been very interested in Force 10 again and, and how it perhaps foreshadows and illuminates more of Dermot's writing. Absolutely. I think picking up on Brian's point about the the lasting legacy, its influence went well beyond its immediate readership. Um, For a few years back in the the mid-90s, I edited an arts and culture magazine in Sligo Town, The Buzz, which was very much inspired by that example. Our production manager, Martin Finan, had worked with Dermot on Force 10, so it was bringing those ideas to bear. And in fact, Brian Layden did a memorable interview with Dermot for The Buzz. Similarly, in Curry around the same time, my current co-editor, Neil Murphy, he was editing a journal in Tralee, Asylum. And again, it's modelled on the values and the ethos of Force 10. So I think it did have a, a much wider cultural impact beyond its readership, certainly in terms of my generation of writers, editors, critics. So I, I think also in terms of legacy, it would be worthwhile digitising all 13 issues of Force 10 and making them available on the internet and a good way of seeing how that early work does feed into the, the novels, the plays, the poetry. Brian, you've said that you still get a bit of a shiver of excitement when you see those old back issues of of Force 10. Is that about a kind of nostalgia or is it a recognition of something exceptional that is past? Yeah, it is uh, something exceptional because we don't forget either that not only did it collect all this material, there was a traditional music special issue and Dermot had a long essay on Michael Coleman and that is a very powerful, informative essay that I dip into regularly when I need to know things and there was a mental health issue special and I edited uh, one on immigrant and immigration topics so there is a a phenomenal social record and of course a treasure trove of imagery to go with the times and even the advertisement themselves that subsidised the magazine are like a time tunnel into the businesses. You can map the economy of the North West just through the ads alone. Turning to Dermot's fiction, uh, Keith Hopper, his first published fiction was Banish Misfortune 1982, the title story winning, of course, two Hennessy Awards. Remind us of the power of those stories as was showing how Healy could get to the unsentimental heart of matters so effectively. Banish Misfortune came out in 1982, but he'd been writing stories much earlier than that, um, going back to, I think, 1973, writing stories for the Irish press, uh, which two of which won um, the Hennessy Awards. I think Aidan Higgins um, famously said that when he gave the award for Banish Misfortune that he deserved first, second and third prize. The new collective stories that I'm editing with Neil Murphy were keen to show the early stories, how it evolves. They're much more straightforward. They're much more immediate. He's definitely experimenting with form. Then we have Banishment's Fortune. Few of the stories are dense and difficult. Tim McGrady has an essay in the new collection of essays we're editing, and he mentioned that uh, the trick to experiencing Finnegan's Wake, Joyce said, was to read it aloud. The trick with these stories is to read them twice. Then you can take them in as breath. So there's a couple of stories like Banish Misfortune that are very densely woven. They do have, as Tim said, that multicoloured density. But the rest of them are straightforward. 
We've also included the few stories he wrote after that, and he didn't return to the short form all that much after he started writing novels. And he brings together that kind of experimental tradition and a more straightforward way of thinking and writing. So th- there's, there's an absolutely wonderful long story, it's about 8,000 words, called Before the Off, which came out in 1999. We described it in our editor's introduction as a kind of under-milk wood for race scores. It's set on, a, <laughs> on race day, around a racetrack, and it's a real hybrid text. The rhythms are somewhere between a, a traditional short story that wouldn't be out of place with O'Flaherty or Phelan, and a radio play by Beckett. It has kind of overlapping dialogue, stage directions, dramatic scene changes woven into the very fabric of it. And it's a stepping off point for the later novels like Sudden Times and Long Time No See. So he managed to mix traditional elements of storytelling with a very new, modernist, imagistic way of writing. And it's a great uh, combination of the two. Bill Swainson, you edited... Dermot's story, Spanish Misfortune, and the novel, A Goat Song, at Great Dean Ward. What are your memories of those early short stories and the impact they had on first reading? Uh, they made a huge impact. I'd come across Dermot Healy through Neil Jordan, who I met at a launch of one of Aidan Higgins' later novels, Scenes from Receding Past in Dublin. So we're in about 1978. Uh, Writers and Readers Co-op was getting off the ground in Dublin for the reasons that Neil mentioned in his part of the interview. And we were talking about uh, young writers coming up, and I was aware of Des Hogan and Adrian Kelly. And uh, Neil said, the person you really need to get in touch with is Dermot Healy, at which point Aidan came in and started talking about Healy's use of metaphor and how he didn't always understand where they were going, but it was a journey he wanted to make. So I wrote to Dermot, and about two years later, he rang me back. Uh, I was working then at Alison and Busby. We met in Wandsworth. And in the interim, I'd found four stories. There was Banished Misfortune, a story called Jude and His Mother, uh, A Family in a Future, and The First Snow of the Year I'd come across. And this voice was so immediate, but also so very musical. It also, as others have mentioned, in these early stories, Dermot had it. There was a kind of density, as if there was a need to get the whole of life onto the page. And Dermot had the gift to be able to do that. So, yes, those stories made a huge impact. Tim, do you remember again the power of them on first reading, as so many people do, because Dermot had this, did seem to hold so much, as Bill was saying there, to hold so much within text, almost whole worlds within it? Well, I do. I mean, he'd cast quite a long shadow before I'd ever read him because I'd heard so much about him and people seemed to speak about him as if he was somehow specially anointed like he was a figure that was distinct he was using language in a bolder more imaginative way than others maybe as yet knew how to do i'd heard an awful lot about him i'd never met him i got the book that uh, bill published and i started to read it and uh, i've got a sentence here it was on the first page of Bennett's misfortune For whatever reason the house might fall, the sleeping MacFarlane would build again with a sense of adventure anywhere north of the lakes, and in good time, son of Saul, master builder of Fermanagh County, but by pneumonia put away, while tended by his wife Olive, glan woman and descendant of J. O'Reilly, who danced once with flax in his trousers, and though nominally Christian, died in foreign and pagan lands fighting an unjust war. 
But McFarland, sensing the lie of the land, grew away from a sense of guilt or desire for power and prayed that the haphazard world would not destroy his family so well grounded among the moralities of chance and nature, if one could remain loyal to the nature of a people and not the people themselves, for whatever reason the house might fall. That was just one sentence, and... Um, it has something mythical, something impersonal in it, something biblical in it. You know, it's hard to figure out the syntax of that sentence. It's hard to know where you are in that. And when I first read it, that's why Keith said uh, you, you have to read it twice, because I just felt like I was running into a hedge when I, when I read this at first. But then it became so clear. And then, you know, he just found some way of making this so alive and so big and so mythical it was very, very exciting to read him. And his his rendering of those things, it was they weren't small things. They weren't people's anxieties. They were it was so much bigger than that. And nature was such a force in it, and there was such humor in it. Um one other sentence soft Chinese music of the rain on glass and leaves, lightly touched symbols. Ducks, there's the ducks again, crashing onto the waters, the primitive crane stretching her awkward wings in a lone high flight, the land below so cold and misty it looked as if a healing frost had settled. You know, they're just so, such stunning sentences, and you knew that you're in the hands of somebody major, really. That's what I felt. You've said in the past that for, for Dermot Healy, the act of writing was taking down rather than making up. And I suppose in that way, the, the act of the interview, which we talked about earlier uh, with regard to Force 10, must have been a source for his fiction writing. But there was also a great deal of making up and Dermot celebrated that. I mean, he, he also had an extraordinary imagination and a power to channel that. Yes, we've all met a lot of people who produce creative things but you know they there's something when they produce those things and something else when you talk to them they're maybe they're more discursive they make sense Dermot you know you just felt you really were in the presence of an artist who was an artist all the time language was something as clay is to a sculptor very malleable it was constantly happening everything he was perceiving was being mutated through his imagination, through his memory, through his deep engagement he had with language. So there was true a making up, but he was all the time letting the world happen to him with this such an uh, intelligence and receptivity and a, a kind of openness. He would suspend himself and then mill it and transform it. And um, there was making up, of, of course, but it was part of the taking in. Bill Swainson, a, a sentence uh, like the one Tim quoted there from Banish Misfortune is a wonder, but I'm sure that at times sentences like that might have been a difficulty for an editor to confront. What was it like editing Dermot's work? Well, the first thing to say is that a good editor trusts the writer. They, they listen to the sound of that voice on the page. I don't mean what the writer says about what they've written, but what's actually evident in the words. And there was such confidence in the best of Dermot's writing right from the very beginning that really what you were trying to do was make sure you'd understood. Later on, as Dermot's writing became simpler in style, but taking on bigger, even more challenging subject than that of the, the story Banishment's Fortune, the, the editorial role was a matter of reading, not trying to be clever, not trying to persuade Dermot you'd understood, but when you genuinely didn't understand, say you didn't understand. And it was almost the editor as pupil 
And I don't mean by that that everything Dermot wrote was wonderful or clear or served the purpose. And I can remember that in about two-thirds of the way through his writing of A Goat Song, and it was a book that had a very, very long gestation. It it took a lot of stamina, certainly on Dermot's part, but also the editor's part to see it through. He started writing it in about 1983-4, and we published it in, I think, 1993. So in the course of that book, the editor's desire to see the book finished would be providing a certain kind of energy. Dermot's desire to do right by the book and get at what he was trying to say was, of course, at the heart of it. But there were times when there were uses of language and phrasing that left this English reader quite widely read, but nevertheless with his use of English based in the English idiom. Some of Dermot's Irish phrases or lacunae where he, or ellipsis, where he would, you would have to follow him on trust. And you can do that. You can skip a beat. You can skip two beats. It introduces something in- interesting into the rhythm. But if you skip two beats too close together, you can lose your reader. So I was standing there a bit like the slower child in the class saying, hang on a minute, let me understand this. And that both helped Dermot, but I also think it must. there were times when it must have been enormously frustrating. At the end of it, a goat song emerged and the clarity of the language i was looking back to the other day the clarity of the language is quite extraordinary in that book it manages to be still elusive it's got that lovely rhythm that dermot had in his writing and it has the overall sense of structure the structure is there in the first story banished misfortune that i read i think of it as following an essay by sean golden as a kind of theme and variations on an irish air sean in that essay follows that line through really remarkably. But actually, if you look at Dermot's writing through all his books, for someone who lived, Neil called it a peripatetic life, it was often a very chaotic life, the sense of the understanding of form and what form can do to make something that's personal available to everybody was quite extraordinary. And I'll give you one example from A Goat Song. In the story, Jonathan Adams, the policeman in the story, the father of the two girls, one of whom, Jack Ferris, the the hero or protagonist of the book, falls in love with, is sent up with the B-specials from the country to Derry. And there was this moment in the writing of the book where Dermot sent me a chapter called The News at Six. And that's the chapter that ended with the sequence of the, the policeman beating one or two of the protesters in Derry over the head with his truncheon, and you'll see that he loses his hat if you ever watch that clip uh, on the internet. And Dermot melds the character he's been creating, drawing on his grandfather's experience, drawing on his own experience, with something he's seen on the news. And the chapter ends with this wonderful sentence, which is very brave and almost, I mean, it shows Dermot's sort of temerity in a way. It ends as follows, because someone had knocked off his hat, he had started a war. And you know at that point the the novel shifts gear and you're into something really extraordinary. And, and of course, wars have started for indeed such minor incidents. Peter Fallon, were you reading Dermot as a prose writer before you became aware of him as as a poet? I wasn't. Um, There was a big moment when Seamus Heaney included a lot of Dermot's poems in an annual anthology called Soundings. 
And at the time, Seamus was accepting two or three poems by, by many of us. But suddenly there were ten or a dozen poems by Dermot. They were distinctive and memorable, and they were a voice and a presence, all of the things that continued through a very distinctive body of work. But Dermot continued to write poems, but didn't continue to concentrate on them at the forefront of his writing career. I'm glad that Bill mentioned Sean Golden, because Sean was a terrific early champion of Dermot's work. And Sean and I edited in the 70s an anthology for Notre Dame Press in in Indiana and for America, with the hope of introducing some new fiction writers different from the conventional accepted work that people might be familiar with. So there was a passage from a Neil Jordan novel in that. Aidan Higgins was in that. There was a story by Dermot's in that. So I was aware of the work, but often I found it opaque, oblique. Um, I was hungry for some easier satisfaction from it, that it seemed to be resisting. And I think in some way Dermot didn't trust and was only learning himself and how to come into being as a writer that might take into account a reader as well. When you read the fiction alongside the poetry, do you see the lines of connection and do you see where one maybe again feeds or illuminates the other? Or are they quite separate worlds for you? First, I I would say that for someone who works in different genres and works so well in different genres, they can suffer in terms of their reputation, a kind of confusion in people's minds about, well, is he a novelist or is he a poet or is he a playwright or what is he? And they can suffer for that. But it would be foolish to imagine that aspects of one form don't come into another. So even in the poetry, there will be dialogue, there will be plot sometimes, aspects of the fiction, there will be narrative. And and the prose was highly poetic, sounds like a bad word to describe prose, but elements of poetry informed the prose. But I think through the 20-plus years that we worked together on five books, there was a growing sense, one, of the possibilities of clarity in work, and two, I think, increasingly, because Dermot used to send me just bundles of poems, and and we'd go through them, we'd talk in great detail about them, and then eventually put a shape to them to make a book. I think Dermot learned some sense of the arc of a novel through this. And I think it's no coincidence that late books like Long Time No See are clear and stunning and striking in so many ways that the poems are. Keith Hopper, you've been looking at the the fullness of of Dermot's work over the decades. Would you concur with some of what Peter is saying there? Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with Peter. I think that in an age of specialisms, Dermot suffered in terms of his reputation because he wasn't pinned down to any one form. I think what makes him a great writer is that he transgresses the boundaries between genres and even the the boundary between reality and fiction at times. But I I think, you know, it never harmed Beckett that he wrote radio plays and that he wrote film scripts and also, obviously, 
poetry, short stories, fiction, drama. And I think the same is true of, of Dermot. And I think Beckett, in fact, was a big influence. I mean, if you take a goat song, I think there are descriptive passages in that that are immensely poetical. Long time no see benefits again from his work as a dramatist. Uh, there's passages of dialogue that no intrusive quotation marks, no kind of Joycean dashes to indicate who's speaking, but you're always very sure of who is speaking because of the rhythm of it, because of the distinctness of each character's voice. And it's a remarkable achievement to bring those things together. So I think long time really does bring together all those different talents uh, in one go. It's also very cinematic as well, and I think that idea of the image is very important in Dermot's work. Mary, um, you spent a good deal of time with Dermot, and you've written a poem since Dermot died, which I suppose in some ways touches on some of that rich landscape of his work. Yes, perhaps I'd introduce the occasion because there were many such occasions where I would stay the night with Dermot and Helen. Then Dermot and I would occasionally travel up north together if we were working at the same place, usually Derry. So that's the occasion of this particular poem, A Lift. Tell me, is it all atomized energies or do the dead, as Baudelaire says, have bad hours? The world goes on as wicked as before or worse, whatever history says. Because of us, we like to think, I'm not so sure. Remember the time we said a decade of tunes in the car to pass the time on the way to Derry. You giving the first one, no stuttering aloud, me answering. I'd like one more chat as we cross the border, four packed in the back, faces solemn for the soldier. Questions about fiddling styles, the long poem, you were against it, where I stood on the baron. And always the clouds parted, and anything. Statues, Soho strippers, homeless boys, a sinking cruise ship could appear there, out of nothing, like a flock of maybirds, because that's how life is, pure magic. The phrase, a decade of tunes, is so lovely. And I, you, you see that in Dermot's work, the, the referencing of the names of tunes. Exactly. You know, Banish Misfortune, Last Night's Fun. And we did it like the rosary. You know. <laughs> Dermot would shout one out. Of course, he'd be giving it. It would be, it would be, be quite answering. a test of one's knowledge of, of, of music <laughs> to be able to, to respond. Your reading of, of Dermot's poetry, what are its strengths for you? I always felt he wrote almost in an unbroken line from the very early Irish poets. I mean, in Irish now, there was a a clarity and a purity of tone. I love the Ballyconnell colours. I I always have. I mean, we disagreed on many. We we had many a a battle uh, regarding various aspects of style and so on privately between ourselves. But and then those extraordinary later the poems in What the Hammer that beautifully named from Blake, um, those very simple poems, haiku-like simplicity, the old chiefs. I mean, somebody referred early, if I could just quote from the old chiefs, where Dermot talked about bringing myth, I think it was Neil Jordan, making myth real. Well, perhaps he made reality myth as well. Uh, Not till I'd seen the old chiefs trying to land their boats out of the world of myth did I hear the wheat ear and the finch. And there's a very, very homeopathic almost levels at which that reacts after you've read it. Also, there were, you know, the two moons, those wonderful, almost Basho-like poems. I think I liked his poems best, the lesser narrative and the more imagistic, if you like. Or, I mean, Dermot was a modernist in many ways as well. He sat happily in that tradition. 
But above all, I think image and tone, they stay with me. Peter um, Dermot, for me, I keep sometimes when I read Dermot and see what Mary's talking about, that extraordinary simplicity, mastery of of the seemingly simple uh, that is almost Japanese in its power. Yeah, and I think that's a perennial and global gift. Um, About his poems, I would really say he's like nobody else. And as an editor, the first reader, the one to whom the poems were entrusted, sometimes an editor's job is to exercise a kind of plane or polish on the work and remove rough edges. But the rough edges were all those snags and briery things on which uh, our imaginations and affections were held constantly in Dermot's poetry of different kinds. The knots and snags of wonder. Exactly. Keith, you were also very taken by his power as a poet. Yeah, very much so. I was just thinking there of um, Seamus Heaney's comment about him. He says it isn't just nature poetry, it's gratitude for the whole gift of existence in Healy. And he, he compared him to Kavanagh, the same sense of place that's very much rooted in the practical rather than a picturesque notion, the kind of rhythms of colloquial speech, the rhythms of seasonal labour. And I think the way that it becomes spiritual poetry without ever being religious, and I think that runs through it. Um, and that's where I think, again, the traditional and the modernists combine. Uh, Mary mentioned that lovely little imagistic squib, two moons, which is simply the moon above Sligo is not the moon above Mayo. That's it. That's the entire poem. <laughs> Any time I've ever read that out, people love it. Although I did notice a couple of critics looking through reviews uh, sniped at it, that it, was, uh, that it lacked faith in the poetical project. I mean, I don't know. I, I think at his best, Dermot was a maker of moving images in both senses of, of, of the phrase. The images are always very poignant, often weighed down with melancholy right from the start. But they're also very much rooted in the real. They're constantly in motion moving towards some kind of unknowable future. So I think it combines the best element of traditional Irish poetry and what we would call, I suppose, that umbrella term, modernist. Um, he is very well read, and I think that feeds into that, um, that kind of synthesis. Is that movement and melancholy a strong strain as well in the fiction? You know, for instance, if you look at, at the first novel, Fighting with Shadows, is, it, hmm. is that part of the territory we see in the landscape of Fermanagh and the characters in that? Well, very much so. I think all the work, in some ways, is about borderlands and liminal spaces and liminal states of mind. So, Fighting with Shadows, it's, it's, as you said, it's on the, ca- the Fermanagh Cavan border. I think what's great about it is, aside from the obvious political border between North and South, he's looking at the, the deeper divisions, the, the social, the sectarian, the sexual divisions that simmer away beneath the surface. And I think the language throughout it is very earthy, very shrewd, sprinkled with moments of uh, intense lyrical insight, but there's also some laugh-out-loud moments of comedy, and it kind of lifts the brooding intensity of the storyline. One of the most remarkable books about the Troubles. It is very dense at times, but uh, it rewards very careful reading again. It has a a melancholy that is trying to make sense of, of the wider Troubles in a very humanist way. Neil Jordan mentioned uh, Dermot Healy reading him a script of one of his plays uh, yeah. late on in his life. Uh, you're, I know, publishing in for, the, for the first time, actually, uh, many of, of the texts that will be published by yeah. the Dorking Archive Press. I mean, he's not the kind of playwright in the Brian Freel way where, you know, you'd hand a text over and actors would perform it. He's an actor, he's a stage director, he's a dramaturg. 
Again, it goes back to his roots. He, he founded the uh, Hackler's Theatre Group in Cavan uh, in 1979. Their very first production, uh, Beckett's Waiting for Godot, which he directed, won the All-Ireland Amateur Drama Festival in 1980. I mean, it's quite remarkable. Actually, we're very grateful to the Hacklers and Patty Murray in particular for giving us photographs and clippings from the time. I mean, you can feel in that sheer energy and enthusiasm for theatre. I think Beckett did remain the touchstone for the, the playwriting career. There's 13 plays in all, beginning in 1985 with Here and There and Going to America, which was performed at the Sligo Youth Centre. Um, after that, he wrote and usually directed a play pretty much every two years. I mean, he was very industrious, very hardworking. But they're always in collaboration with various community groups. So Sirius, for example, was performed by prisoners from Castlereagh Prison in 2005, where he was writer-in-residence. Similarly, A Night in the Disco was written in 2006 in collaboration with the teachers and students of uh, St Mary's Secondary School in Ballina. I mean, imagine being a teenager in a convent school and having someone like Dermot as your resident dramatist. I mean, that kind of collaborative energy is what comes through. He did bigger productions, uh, some in the Hebrides Islands, stuff in the Peacock in Dublin. He wrote a remarkable adaptation of uh, Garcia Lorca's Blood Wedding, which I think is ripe for revival. And really, our hope is that when these collected plays are published next year, that amateur and professional groups will stage some of them. I mean... It's a big book. It's going to be about 450 pages. It's not as densely woven as the novels. It has this gift of dialogue. It feels very free-flowing and natural. And I think that um, amateur and professional groups will find an awful lot in this. And Peter Fallon, there might be a poem from the posthumous collection which you launched uh, at Courch uh, last month, The Travels of Sorrow. Um, a poignant title in the wake of Dermot's death, but I, I presume it maybe was a title you were considering before. It was. Died. I mean, often Dermot would, as I say, submit a bundle of poems and then maybe another version of them. And we would whittle books out of these. And there were different titles that were being discussed. The poem, The Travels of Sorrow, is one that's addressed to the McSweeney's and Sean McSweeney and Sheila and their family have been a very important presence for Dermot in West Sligo where they live and fittingly, of course, again, a painting by Sean Grace's, this new book. Peter, would you like to read maybe one that that carries for you something of of the strength of, of Dermot's work? Well, let me read a tiny, tiny poem from the new book, but preface it by quoting the last line of that title poem, which shows the kind of clarity and resonance that I think Dermot's work was moving towards through all the decades. The poem, The Travels of Sorrow, ends, Sorrow never travels far from home. But there is also in the book a tiny poem called from the back row. The tide stone is an angry dog. The moored boat travels far in fog. Quintessential Dermot Healy. My thanks to all of you. Uh, Bill Swainson, Peter Fallon, Keith Hopper, Timothy O'Grady, Miriam Malley, Brian Layden and Neil Jordan. And so much more we could talk about There will be other occasions and it is wonderful to think that this series of books will help to celebrate Dermot Healy's remarkable achievement in literature. Thanks again to all of you. 
Only Himself, a tribute to Dermot Healy, takes place during this year's International Literature Festival Dublin, this coming Sunday the 24th of May in the O'Reilly Theatre, when contributors include Patrick McCabe, Martin Hayes, Roddy Doyle and Jennifer Johnston, as well as some of the contributors to this edition of Arts Tonight. Dermot Healy's posthumous poetry collection, The Travels of Sorrow, is published by the Gallery Press. And forthcoming publications, the edited collected short stories, the edited collected plays, an edited edition of his first novel, Fighting with Shadows, and a collected critical essays on the writing of Dermot Healy, all edited by Keith Hopper and Neil Murphy, will each be published by the Dorky Archive Press in the coming months. On next week's Arts Tonight, we travel to Manchester's Whitworth Gallery and meet one of Britain's most acclaimed contemporary artists, Cornelia Parker, whose extensive exhibition has relaunched the gallery after major renovations. Join us then. Good night. Arts Tonight is presented by Vincent Woods and produced by Cleanin' the